Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. My name is Ed Reed. I'm the Africa editor at Energy Voice. Alistair Thomas still missing in action. Last thing we heard, going somewhere on a train, who knows. But I am joined today by Asia editor Damon Evans and digital journalist Hamish Penman. How are you chaps? Very well, thanks. How are you doing? Good, good. Excellent. And Hamish, I'm glad that you you really really lunged into that because we're coming to you first (laughs) with some uh, discussion about uh, electrification. Seems like a like a like a kind of a continuing uh, big topic in the North Sea and the sort of the, the the quest for net zero, I suppose. Talk us through it. Yeah, an ongoing big topic. Um, a lot of chat around it, but it looks like we could now be seeing um, some some tangible things coming to coming to be. So, it is now looking like industry is going to get on with it. It's decarbonising it, its operations. So, um, I mean, whether that's because operators have got more cash now or more confidence that production will continue for the foreseeable, I'm not sure. But it's a uh, it's very welcome development. Um, so in, most notably this week, Orcadian Energy, uh, formerly Faris Energy, uh, has unveiled its electrification plans that could trim uh, £1.6 billion off the costs and cut operational emissions from offshore platforms by up to around uh, 80%. Um, so it involves using uh, floating wind backed up by gas generators, kind of highly efficient and using uh, the lowest lowest carbon gas I think that they can find to uh, to power offshore platforms. Um, so energy or the, the renewable energy part of this will be pulled into distribution hubs and then dished out to platforms around and about. Um, kind of currently platforms that use diesel generators, which accounts for around two thirds of their emissions. So this would be a pretty sizable cut uh, in those carbon emissions if they're able to to get this and, and rolled, it, rolled out widely. Um, so the big sell that it has uh, other um, kind of over other conventional ideas is that it removes the need to lay a massive cable from shore to to hook platforms into the grids. That obviously has cost implications. It's incredibly pricey to one source the cables and two lay them for for dozens of miles. Um, also, it has reliability issues with cables being so long and, and maintenance issues as well. So there's quite a few drawbacks to it. Um, it also allows infrastructure to be redeployed, so it kind of sits nicely with this reuse and recycle piece that industry is increasingly keen to to adopt, and, and rightly so. Um, also, because it's cheaper than a cable from shore, it means older platforms will be able to run more economically. So it could also um, help in prolonging the the life of some of the North Sea's older fields. Uh, so the concept has been specifically designed for a central Graben area. The major operators there are BP, Shell, uh, Total Energies, Harbour Energy. So pretty much all the big North Sea heavyweights have got, a, got an interest in there somewhere. Um, and I chatted to Steve Brown about this. He's Orcadian's chief exec, and he was pretty confident that it's actually transferable as well for, for other assets around and about. And he listed quite a few off that it could sit nicely in. He also presented his uh, concept at the, the DevEx conference in Aberdeen on Tuesday. Um, Alistair and I, so I can confirm that he's still alive, uh, were up at, <laughs> and darting around between sessions and listening to a, a lot of very intelligent people talk about very complex things. And uh, most of it went sailing right over my head, to be honest. But such as such as the way of things. Um, but quite fittingly, during the during the plenary that that Alistair attended, um, Andy Brooks from the North Sea Transition Authority, he really honed in on this electrification piece. He said it will prove beyond all doubt that the North Sea can produce oil and gas in a way that's uh, compliant with with climate checkpoints. Uh, also on the panel was uh, Pierre Girard from from Neptune Energy, who. 
kind of talked about their work with um, renewables behemoth Orsted around electrification uh, of Cygnus, which is a really major gas platform in the Southern North Sea, accounts for a very large proportion of uh, the UK's gas supply and has got a good number of years left ahead of it as well. So like Orcadian, they also got funding fairly recently from the North Sea Transition Authority to to progress this electrification concept. Um, so I think it seems like we could well be seeing an update from them soon as well. Um, just kind of looking at the makeup of it, Cygnus is located pretty near to Orsted's massive Hornsea developments. I think Hornsea 1 is up and running, Hornsea 2 is being installed, and there's still 3 and 4 to come, although I think there's more question marks around 4. There's a lot of discussion there about BP because BP is wanting to use a nearby reservoir for CTS, so they're in a in a discussions about uh, how best to use the space. Very um, diplomatically put. Yes. Um, so I think... Given the location and proximity to Hornsea, um, I would be surprised if they don't intertwine somewhere. I'm sure Orsted are probably also looking for someone to offtake a bit of green electricity there rather than trying to feed it all into the grids. Um, so, yeah, it seems like the electrification cogs are beginning to turn after a, after a lot of chat. And that's a, a pretty opportune time, I think. I'm not sure how long these ideas will take to implement given that they're going to be relying on floating wind farms and, and perhaps flicked bottom wind farms that aren't yet there. It's going to be a number of years, but hopefully now the ball is rolling, it will roll uh, quicker and quicker. I mean, obviously the floating wind part feels, you know, very, very on trend. Uh, but there was also mention in there of, of, of gas, I suppose, to sort of, you know, fill in the gaps when the, when the wind isn't blowing. So I think you know, is it about 60% the sort of a, a utilization for, for for wind turbines something like that. Um but in terms of that gas I mean how how would how would they get the gas would that is that is that sort of relying on sort of associated gas from the reservoirs would they have to bring it in somehow what how does the gas part work I mean I, I presume it must be associated that would be the the more kind of Especially with the way they're honing in on the uh, the cost effectiveness of this, if you're then having to light, lay a big gas pipeline to hook up to a platform, that surely ramps up the cost a bit. So um, <laughs> you would you would assume that it's going to be lo or sourced from from nearby locations. That then does mean that platforms that are wanting to use this technique will probably have to rely on having gas sources around them. Um, there probably would be the potential to to bring it in from from further afield. But yeah, like I said, that could. Or would likely come with a cost implication mm. when given the margins on electrification are pretty narrow and a lot of operators have made this point that it has to be the most cost effective solution because they're just uh, it's an expensive thing to do yeah and for for kind of not much financial return i mean the the return on this is social more than financial i think more generally so yeah it'd be interesting to see whether how that kind of gas part pans out absolutely absolutely and uh in terms of of of, of people who you think might be the sort of first movers i mean you you've, you've mentioned those kind of big companies in the in the central grab and do you think that those companies are i mean it's always that thing isn't it about you know do all you know the the you know, sort of the bps and the shells you know are they looking at sort of new investments in this area or, or is it a question of just sort of running assets down and, and just kind of getting out? What, do, you, do you think that they might actually take the plunge and, and, and say, yeah, let's do some floating wind? I think so. They all teamed up on a, a, a project electrification study. Um, I think it was kind of summer, towards the summertime last year. There was an announcement that, yeah, BP, Shell, Total Energies Harbour, all the ones that were listed there by, um, by Steve as being potential candidates for this solution, they have all been studying electrification. I know that kind of how long they're going to spend in the area will be a, a big kind of point of this. I wanted to 
Patrick Puyan, when, when he was up in Aberdeen recently, he spoke about how they're going to have to be pretty selective over which of these, um, which of their platforms will actually be electrification candidates for, because for some, it's just not going to make financial sense. Why would you electrify a platform that's got 10 years left in it? It's just not a rational move, but he kind of listed off kind of Elgin Franklin as, as one that they were looking at potentially. So I think they are all looking at it, but I don't think they are looking at it across a whole asset portfolio. I think they are going to have to be pretty selective. And yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it only makes sense to to electrify those platforms that have got 20, maybe 30 years left. So that probably does whittle down the um, the, the uh, eligible bachelors quite quite uh, significantly. Yeah, I, I had a couple of points. I mean, did, did I read correctly that... Um the, the power generation on the platforms accounts for about two-thirds of emissions from, from oil and gas operations. Yeah, it's about that. It's, it, it's pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, so electrifying the platforms with floating wind seems like a pretty good way to get a social license, as you mentioned. And, and is, is there any price on carbon emissions in the UK or any tax penalty for, for that? Do producers get penalised at the moment or that, that, that doesn't exist? I don't believe that they do, but there are massive drives to encouraged they they can i believe the north sea transition authority can hit uh, operators with with fines for for excessive flaring or for, for flaring out with permits um so there is that point of it but not for kind of general operational activities i mean i'm not sure if there's so much kind of chat about carbon pricing and things at the moment whether where that plays into the uh, the industry i'm not entirely sure but yeah like you said Demi, i think the floating wind part does does make sense Operators could well be waiting for for the cost of floating wind turbines to come down, though it is a still because it's so nascent, is still quite an expensive technology, especially compared to um, to fixed bottoms. So there's probably work that needs to be done there as well. But look, if they crack it, then there will be plenty of other basins globally that will be looking to electrify their operations. So there's a very good blueprint here to to pick up and to take to places like Gulf of Mexico and and, and other areas dotted around that. I mean, there's the the opportunities of getting it right first time opens a opens a nice door for for Orcadian to to take their take their ideas to the world. Absolutely, and 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 I think that that kind of idea about kind of scope one and two emissions is really important, there, isn't it? And I think you know, obviously, with these sort of net zero targets, which are you know pretty close for these kind of big companies. You know, the sort of next ten years, people are trying to you know really kind of uh, make progress in, in in reducing those emissions. Then they're going to have to start doing something soon, aren't they? Right to to kind of get the ball rolling to try and hit those targets. Um, you know, let alone sort of you know the, the the bigger piece around sort of decarbonisation. So they've made these kind of commitments, and obviously, you know, they've I've, I've, there's a kind of a real feeling they've got to uh, got to got to got to got to meet them. But I, I think that's probably a, a good point to, to 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 pause. But we'll be back after a short break to talk more about uh, social responsibility. Energy Voice and Bracewell present NEO2, capitalising on new energy opportunities in the Middle East. The energy transition will need to harness an array of new technologies with solar PV, hydrogen and storage all playing a critical role. These three industries each have their own merits and challenges, but are certain to attract substantial capital and create significant opportunities for the global supply chain. In 2021, Energy Voice presented the first in our NEO series which focused on the US market. 
On Wednesday, the 18th of May 2022, in association with Bracewell, a leading law firm renowned worldwide for its unique depth and experience in energy, we are delighted to present a follow-up virtual event focused on new energy opportunities in the Middle East. The international energy industry has much to learn from the rapid development of these technologies in the region. And our heavyweight panel will explore how solar PV, hydrogen and storage are shaping the new energy mix and how to capitalize on the opportunities this transition presents. For free registration, visit neo-2022.com. So Damon, uh, you, you, you brought in the, the spectre of uh, social responsibility there. Uh, and, and I think that you, there was a, a very interesting piece you wrote uh, this week about uh, some, uh, some, some recycling that was going on uh, in India and, and possibly some, sh- some, some shortcomings in, in, in the oversight there. Yeah, that, that's right, Ed. And um, a hat tip to you for, for pointing this my way. Originally in April, uh, very sad news that a, a worker lost his life in one of the beaching yards in in India, and um, the the yard in particular, um, an FPSO is being dismantled, which formerly belonged to BW Offshore, one of the biggest operators of FPSOs for the oil and gas sector globally. Um, the fatal accident has raised serious doubts about health, safety, and environmental procedures, as well as poor supervision at the beaching yards in India, where where vessels such as these FPSOs and their useful life. Um, the, the incident involved an explosion after a nitrogen tank was cut and the worker, at least one worker died and possibly two more were injured. Uh, it, the, the situation around the accident is kind of murky. Um, a, an NGO called NGO Shipbreaking Platform was the first to kind of flag the incident I suppose internationally, they sent out press releases and and they claim that the nitrogen tank was removed from the FPSO, which used to belong to BW. Now, BW, they put out a statement saying, well, no, it's got nothing to do with our F, former FPSO that is being dismantled in the yard. And, um, and I contacted BW offshore and, and and they kindly replied and they said that the pressure vessel that caused the accident is unrelated to our former vessel. Uh, that being said, we want to have an independent incident report and a corrective action plan from this report. So uh, that's interesting. But the, the other interesting aspect is that you have, you, have one, you have criticism about these yards because of the way they dismantle ships, chop them up, drop them into the ocean, or the pollutants go everywhere. I mean, these, these vessels are highly contaminated, highly toxic. So that's a set. That's kind of a separate issue, um, but the other issue is the um, the fact that these accidents are happening here, and uh, th- this accident in particular happened because the workers acted contrary to the regulations, according to one source in our lang, which is where the the yard is. And uh, in that, and, and this source said, in my view, this sheds light on the procedures and safety measures of the yard that they have chosen, regardless of the fact whether it's a part of the ship or not. So that that's interesting and um, another source who has worked in the lang said to me even with the limited information one might draw the conclusion this kind of accident could have happened in any poorly supervised location so essentially we, we have this ship it's being disposed under in perhaps less than desirable circumstances and then we have the question of 
you know, should a company like BW Offshore still be sending their their vessels to these kind of places for recycling? Uh, one of their competitors, the Dutch FPSO operator SBM Offshore, has banned the use of such beach-in yards and will only scrap its offshore assets at yards that maintain uh, stringent environmental and safety standards. And that was after they were exposed by a Dutch uh, documentary journalist team that went in and filmed what was going on in these yards and how workers that were taken apart, their vessels were getting, you know, you know, seriously, seriously harmed by the tox, toxic waste that comes from them and, and the conditions they work in. And it all sounds quite appalling. And uh, myself, I'm only just scratching the surface on all this. And I know Hamish and, and yourself have perhaps reported on, on these yards in particular before. So you, you might be able to add some input later. But um, so... The Dutch FPSO operator SBM Offshore doesn't will not send its vessels to these kind of yards. It will only send it to you know like dry docks and places that have much more stringent safety standards. And the the NGO shipbreaking platform that I mentioned earlier, who are on the case trying to raise awareness about all, all the all the all the things going on in these yards and the poor standards, etc. Uh, they're urging BW Offshore to take kind of more responsibility, like um, like. Um, the, the Dutch FPSO provider has. Um, so yeah, it's kind of kind of sad story. Um, it, 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 it's going on, people are losing their lives. And I think as um, a report Hamish put out earlier this year, um, this NGO had said, you know, there's a lot more fatalities going on than are being reported. So a couple of fatalities have been reported officially. How many are actually happening? How many accidents are happening? We don't know. This particular accident only came into view because uh, a foreign correspondent for German radio was in the area doing a report or investigation into something nearby, not specifically related to this incident. And that's how it got flagged. So, you know, us as the international media might not have even found out about this recent fatality had it not been for that correspondent being in the town so yeah kind of um yeah uh, not a very happy set of circumstances really and uh, it, and bw offshore also sending another fpso on their way to one of these yards in india which ed i think you reported on earlier fpso umuroa i think i probably pronounced that wrong but that is on its way to be dismantled too and is highly Toxic and full of mercury, according to, to one source I spoke to. So, and it's and it's going to the same place. Not exactly the same yard. It's going to a different yard, but it's in that area of Alang. I mean, the yard in question that that I'm talking about. So, the one where we're talking about had the fatal accident. That FPSO went to Priya Blues Yard, and um, and the other. FPSO is going to a, a nearby yard called, um, I can't pronounce it, but Bajnaf Melaram Yard, uh, you know, something like that. <laughs> Excuse my poor pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, there, there is a big question there, isn't there? I think it's, it's always around decommissioning. And I think, you know, Hamish, you know, you, you've sort of reported on this in the North Sea, haven't you? Some of those... I remember a terrifying video where uh, someone was, uh, was 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 cutting something late at night, and it and it just came off, and it you know it was. I, I remember we, we we talked about it, and I, mean, I think there, there there is that kind of that question around decommissioning, isn't there? And and about uh, at a point when 
obviously, you know, kind of, you know, at the end of end of asset life when money is tight, you know, how you how you handle that sort of disposal work uh, appropriately. Hamish, how, how how does it work in the North Sea? Is there are there are there, are there sort of regulations around this, or is it or is it companies having to sort of you know decide to do the right thing? There are and I, there are the EU is quite strict on this. I think also the fact that they're far more likely to get called out if um, if vessels that are are in the North Sea and have spent their life in the North Sea are then suddenly shipped off for um, for scrapping elsewhere. I think that's probably far more likely to be flagged than than it, it would be in other parts of the world, and that's why the NGO ship breaking platform do such um, sterling work and are shining a light on this. But despite the fact that there are these regulations in the EU, they're actually relatively easily easy for, for companies to circumvent. So I, yeah, I did something up on this um, on, earlier in the year and it said that vessel owners can can dodge the regulations by using scrap dealers. So those dealers will purchase um, these, these ships that are on their way out rename re-register and re-flag them while they're on the on their way to to these beaching yards and as i said i think they said that almost half of the ships sold to, to south asia in 2021 changed flag to one of the black listed flags as they called it so cormoros palo uh st kitts and nevis um just a week before hitting the beach um uh, just in that report as well that came out i think it was in january i mean saipem was another one that was named and shamed for um for sending its its ships to these beaching yards and I mean, those photos of the beaching yards as well, they're just kind of remarkable in a, in a quite disturbing way with these, these dozens of ships just lined up, rotting, rusting, waiting to be to be broken down. And yeah, they said that there's, there are far more deaths doing this than reported and people suffer pretty debilitating illnesses and, and ailments from the, from the toxic fumes that they inhale. So it's a, yeah, pretty sobering pretty sobering thing yeah i mean i think it, it is isn't it? And, it and it's that question about how to how you can do it responsibly and uh, i mean look i mean i think you know look the, the you know the, the, the markets that i cover you know you know west africa for instance in particular also has, has a really serious problem with this i mean i think was it the beginning of this year when uh an fpso that had been neglected for so many years uh you know there was a, there was an accident and a fire broke out and it was again. It's sort of you know terrible pollution, and it it, it does seem, doesn't it? Like there there, there seems to be not some sort of need for great, greater insight. And I think disclosure is probably the first step, right? I mean, I think you know, like being able to follow these ships, you know, going from A to B, and 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 actually companies saying this is what we're doing, this is what the plan is, and actually sort of you know taking that sort of first step of responsibility seems like. You know, you know, uh, you know, like a, like a, like an initial way to try and 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 bring some sort of much needed clarity to the sector. Yeah, definitely. I think disclosure is the massive thing because it's it's so easy for the, there are so many ships and tankers and whatnot dotting around the oceans that unless things are properly properly highlighted and and uh, documented, then it's very easy for these things to go missing. You wouldn't think it's easy for a, a massive tanker to kind of to uh, to yeah to fade from the uh, from, from view but with the with the grander scheme of things it is so i think that's but also i mean what what hope do if some of these really big companies like bw are doing that then what kind of example does that set to to, to other companies that are perhaps don't have the the um the rich resources that these companies do i mean it's it doesn't set a very good precedent for the industry whatsoever indeed, indeed and you think that you'd 
sorry, you think a company like BW Offshore would be able to decommission their their vessels in a in a sustainable and transparent manner, right? And I'm sure they do some of them as well. I'm sure it's not all. I'm sure they don't send all of them to these beaching yards, which kind of perhaps even makes it even worse. Well, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I mean, I think look, we're we're you know the 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 fleet of uh, FPSOs and VLCCs and, and and other equipment is is aging, right? So I think you know this is clearly going to be more and more of an issue, and obviously one that you know companies need to do and 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 I, and I suspect that we will be following developments in in, in decommissioning for uh, some considerable time but I think and, and on that sort of note of disclosure uh, I'm going to come back to it uh, after after this short break energy voice presents invest ABZ join us as we lead the conversation on Aberdeen's future as Europe's energy hub this hybrid event, taking place online and at the Chester Hotel in Aberdeen on Thursday the 26th of May, looks to answer the question, why Aberdeen? We'll showcase the innovative leaders and businesses that make investment in the city's future a compelling proposition, covering topics such as technology and R&D, talent and skills, growth sectors and opportunities, and the future of oil and gas in Aberdeen. Our expert panels will share their vision for the city's evolution in a net-zero world, and we'll celebrate the people, skills and technologies on our doorstep, exploring how that local expertise leads the way in the UK and globally. Whether you're part of Aberdeen's diverse business community, an investor considering greater involvement in this thriving market, or a representative of local or national government, InvestABZ will provide essential insight into the region's potential. For free virtual or physical registration, visit investabz.com. So uh, this week there was uh, there was a report out from uh, a US uh, NGO, I think it's the Environmental Defence Fund, and it was it was raising uh, some problems again around this kind of question of disclosure. Discl- I mean, in, in, and 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 sort of uh, sales in a, in, a, in a sort of a slightly different way. So EDF was 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 pointing to the risk where companies, often large companies, uh, who 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 are keen to you know reduce their emissions. In their their quest to net zero, might see um, sales of assets as, as as a way to cut their emissions. Right? I mean, I think as you know, as we've discussed, some some assets you could maybe electrify, you can tackle flaring issues, things like that. Other assets, uh, you know, you may come to the conclusion that the price is too high, and rather obviously than you know, sort of you know, turning off the the spigots and and, and stopping the oil entirely. You may think, hey, why don't I just sell this to to another operator? I can get some cash out of the situation, and then obviously those emissions are moved off my, you know, sort of scope one, scope two, scope three uh, balance sheet, as it were, and, and and it becomes somebody else's problem. Obviously, that it, that in terms of that shifts the, uh, the the buck in terms of sort of corporate responsibility. Obviously, not in terms of the world's needs to uh, tackle carbon emissions. Um, so, so EDF uh, raised. Uh, they had they had three uh, case uh, case studies, two in two in the US and, and one in Nigeria, which really caught my eye because this one in the Nigeria really uh, really struck me as a, as a, as, a, as a, a sort of a as, essentially as a sort of a worst possible example. So the, the sale was uh, so Shell, Total Energies, and Eni uh, sold out their stake in uh, I think it was OML seventeen in Nigeria, a mature asset to a local company. Uh, it's it's uh, a sort of a subsidiary of uh, a company called Airs Holding, 
And they were handsomely rewarded for the sale. I think Shell got something like $550 million. They had the biggest share, but obviously, you know, Total and and, and he also also made a, a fairly good return on that investment. As a result, uh, you know, this this local uh, Nigerian company coming into it said that they wanted to triple the amount of oil production from this asset. And it seems that essentially from day one of, of, of the transfer of this ownership, this 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 particular field that was flagged in this report went from essentially sort of zero routine flaring to actually flaring pretty much all the time. It's something like four million cubic feet of gas a week that is now being flared from this uh, from this uh, field in Nigeria, and so obviously um, there is there is a there is, there's a clear reason for it, right? I mean, I think you know, as as said, you know, the, the, this Nigerian company wants to make its money back. It's got you know lenders to 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 to, to pay back. It's got commitments, and it clearly saw uh, an opportunity to increase production through. Uh, through presumably bringing back wells that have been shut in uh, to 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 reduce flaring, and so we've got to a point where Shell and and any have have left with a big uh, wedge of cash. There's a Nigerian company there who've taken on an, a, a considerable amount of debt, and as a result, they're burning more gas in an effort to pay that down. And I just feel, I mean, it. It just sort of struck me as it, you know, kind of tying into kind of, in fact, both of the, the the pieces that you guys have been talking about, about the ways in which, you know, the the the. I suppose that it's kind of cross purposes, isn't it? There's on the one hand, there's companies that that need to make money. You know, Shell has 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 made these big commitments to you know reduce its own emissions, to move into other sources of energy, and to do that, they clearly see oil and gas and 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 asset sales as as a way to sort of feed that transition. But the ups, the, the the flip side of that is that actually uh, we're kind of going backwards, um, and that 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 asset which had been not burning gas is now burning, you know, gas and just you know sort of releasing sort of smoke into the skies, which which seems terrible. So I mean, so I spoke to uh, to 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 any, and 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 they said um, that that selling assets wasn't part of their their, their way of, of reducing emissions, and that you know they were committed to uh, to their net zero path. Um, but I, I and then I spoke to to another guy from a, a, a flare flare intelligence company called Capterio, and he was saying actually what these companies need to do is 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 more disclosure for a start, and also they need to put in. More stipulations in terms of that sort of sales, you know, agreement, right? There, there, there needs to be more sort of due diligence around when you are transferring an asset to knowing what comes next, right? I mean, I think you know we're sort of seeing it in the North Sea around sort of decommissioning, aren't we? Where you know there are there are kind of questions around who handles kind of decommissioning liabilities, and it's a kind of quite a complicated kind of contractual business. But there obviously are ways to do a more holistic kind of a license than just saying here's the asset give me a stack of cash and I, yeah it just it just it just feels like a disappointment i mean i, I don't know damon are you, are you seeing sort of similar concerns in 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 asia where obviously you know when when you, when you see these these asset sales and you see a sort of recycling of assets do do you have a sense that there's a sort of responsibility there or or or, or, or you know possibly a sort of a similarly uh, depressing stance as we're seeing in Nigeria. Yeah, I think it, 
you know, I don't know if it's as bad as what, what you've described in Nigeria, but I don't think we're seeing any sort of trailing liability like you're suggesting, which actually makes a, a very good good point. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of international oil companies looking to dispose of assets in Southeast Asia, upstream assets. Um, I presume kind of similarly to what you've described there, it, the, the, it depends on the country regulations around emissions and flaring etc and 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 writing it into the the sales agreement and also to do with the the finance who's involved financing the deal and what what their kind of climate aspirations or esg policy is um so yeah i imagine it's much the same but maybe not i imagine nigeria to be particularly kind of i don't know opaque and um people can get away perhaps with more there but i think probably we we're not seeing trading liability yet here. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it, it is a question. It's a it's a it's a really interesting question about that. I mean, there was, there was a study that came out I think last year that was sort of talking about the ways in which you know some companies do, you know, some private companies who you might think might 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 sort of go off on the wrong uh, track actually do, and and the, and the reason that these companies you know abide by possibly sort of similar sort of ideas around, you know, cutting emissions and things like that is a, is a belief in, in, you know, kind of country regulations in, in country policy. And, and there, and there is a decision is taken where people think, you know, we may not have sort of regulations now, but five years down the line, we should, you know, sort of take, take the initiative and kind of get ahead of this problem. And obviously in Nigeria, Nigeria has, you know, banned uh, flaring of, uh, of, of of associated gas a long time ago, but clearly for, for for little purpose, right? I mean, I think there has been little demonstration that people believe in in, in the government's uh, anti-flaring policies, and it it just seems incredibly depressing that that there is no immediate driver and there's also not a longer-term driver. Hamish, what are your thoughts? I mean, yeah, this was a really big issue when um, with, with the Shell court ruling last year when they were ordered to, to cut their emissions by, was it 45% by 2030? And there was sort of kind of environmental campaigners that brought the court, uh, brought the legal battle, were, were overjoyed because they'd won the case. But then it kind of very quickly started to emerge that actually Shell could simply, if they wanted to hit that target, spin off all their assets or spin off some 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 of their biggest emitting ones and could have had a look into this a bit at the time and i remember that bp sold all its stakes um in in alaska in 2020 for very same reasons as part of a drive to try and reduce its carbon footprint bloomberg then carried out research into it and, and under the ownership of um it was private equity backed hillcorp um emissions in the area actually increased even when demand plummeted during covid19 so while the emissions weren't on BP's books anymore. It was globally, it was a, a far worse situation. And I, th- I spoke to, I think it was a chap at various Maple Maplecroft about this, and he said that Shell could well follow suit, and that actually, in the 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 kind of more overarching effort to drive down emissions, it could be quite a bad move. I mean, these operators know these assets; they've quite often been with them since the start. They know where to kick the door to get it to go in, and things like that. So it's um, by removing them from it. All sorts of sorts of problems that were kept um, in the box start to t- start to emerge. So, I mean, if we see more of these le- legal actions brought against the big oil, big oil, then there's every chance this could kind of continue to happen as well, because it's a far simpler solution than, or a far more lucrative solution as well than simply plugging the well and and, and calling it a day. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think there's also that kind of, you know, that, you know, as 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 we were talking about with uh, with Dame and about that kind of disclosure point, isn't there? I mean, you know, people like Shell, you know, they obviously they get grief from sort of environmental campaigners, but actually Shell, you know, discloses its flaring, right? It it says, you know, this is how much, you know, oil we've spilled or, you know, whatever. These these are the accidents we've had. You don't get that with, uh, you know, sort of privately owned uh, Nigerian companies. And I suspect that, you know, companies like Hillcorp, as you were saying, in uh, in, uh, in Alaska also, do they do they disclose scope one, two, three emissions? I, I, I suspect they don't. I mean, I would, I, if, if they if they do, if they're listening, please get in touch. We'd, uh, we'd, we'd love to talk about it. Um, but I think that's, that's probably about all the time that we've got for today. So thank you, uh, Hamish. Thank you, Damon. Uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter at Energy Voice News. Uh, but for now, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.